You are now tuned in to Saved and Woke. Yes, I am. What up, everybody? It's your boy, MSW. That's Mr. Saved and Woke, also known as Juan Enrique Tusei. And this is another episode of the Saved and Woke podcast. Now, for some of y'all, it has been a minute since you heard me. But for my Patreons, they got their weekly dosage of Saved and Wokeness last week. Shoutouts to all of the patrons because of them y'all the saved and woke podcast is now in the black now don't get me wrong it's not like i was hemorrhaging money and just shelling out a lot of cash to keep this show up and running um, but the hosting sites that i use to for for the podcast it costs money it's a it's a monthly subscription and that was just an expense that my wife and i have included in our budget but now the patreon income exceeds the cost of this hosting so thank you all so so much and like i said for all of those for all those of you who are not even on patreon you you will benefit from this it's now financially easier for me to to make the show and so only good things can can come from that if you want to get on, get in on this, and you want to th- see things developed even faster, by all means, become a patron. Go to Patreon.com/SavedAndWoke or search Saved and Woke on the Patreon app. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/SavedAndWoke. Right. Got to talk about the last episode. The Saved and Woke review and analysis of Queen and Slim with my cousins Shannon Smith and Shanika Weeks. That was such a fun, such a fun episode to record and such great content, such great insights. They were saying stuff that had me sitting back just like, wow, I had never thought of that before. It was, it's a great review. Uh, definitely spoilers if you haven't seen the movie yet at at this point. But I feel like if you haven't seen it by now, you're probably not going to see it. But so go by all means, go ahead, go back and and listen to that. And, of, and the Patreons, they got a double dose. So there was so much conversation left over that I just decided to, to have the bonus content or the, the afterthoughts from that conversation be, you know, the afterthoughts. Um and they dropped even we dropped even more even more gems so in the main episode we talked about everything we liked queen and slim's relevance to today and its relevance and value to the church in the bonus episode we started off talking about things about the movie that we didn't necessarily like i was just honest i was like you know there were some things that i didn't like about the film and if you're a patreon you can you can learn about not what just what I didn't like, what I had an issue with, but what Shannon and Shanika did did uh, didn't really feel as well. And they, it, that was just another great, great conversation. So if you haven't checked out that episode, definitely go back and give it a listen. 
And again, to become a Patreon and get access to the bonus content, it's patreon.com slash saved and woke or search saved and woke on Patreon on the Patreon app. So now, without further ado, the content for today's episode. Well, today's episode, y'all, it's Black History Month. Happy Black History Month. And the theme, I've never done a theme themed episodes before or had a theme month or episodes that are based off of you know it being some any particular month but I had to I wanted to really really wanted to this year for Black History Month and I really wanted well we're talking but not just about Black History Month this uh, on the Saved and Woke podcast we're going to be reclaiming Black History Month we're going to be reclaiming black icons black leaders black organizations particularly from the either whitewashed or sterilized portrayal or sometimes even completely and totally distorted portrayal that we've been fed in the years specifically since the civil rights movement because i think everyone that i'm going to be talking about organization was alive or active during the civil rights movement okay and so who better to start with than dr king himself so my before i even realized it martin luther king day was upon us and i did not have an episode ready i didn't have the content but i knew what i wanted to talk about but i didn't have it ready so I, uh, I was hurt, y'all. But uh, I consoled myself by reminding myself that Black History Month is still coming up. And so what I want to do first, before I start, because I always get, I give critiques, give critical analysis of the church, of society, of racism in America, of American racism. But this, this first critique is going to be of myself. Okay. I don't know if you all remember. But in season one of this podcast, season one, episode five. All right. Listen to this episode first before you listen to that episode. I the title of the episode was MLK's biggest mistake. And what I want to do here. So we're, we're reclaiming Black History Month. And we're going to reclaim Dr. King's legacy. And I had to reclaim it for myself because even in that episode, that episode was came from a lot of ignorance and just misinformation that I had been fed. So the the premise of that episode was basically, I said that uh, MLK's biggest mistake was that instead of staying true to his Christian convictions and the mission of the gospel, I felt like, I was basically, I said that MLK had discarded that to be a political leader, um, a politically correct, a politically correct activist. One that could appeal to the masses without alienating people who didn't share his particular religious beliefs. And I fairly recently came to understand that that was completely and totally wrong simply because 
of the fact that it was because of Dr. King's convictions of his and his understanding of who Christ was and of his understanding of the character, the loving character of God, that 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 drove him to be the leader that he was. His understanding of God, his understanding of the body of Christ was was so incompatible with the reality of living in the Jim Crow South that he had to do something about it. But that was not the understanding that I had. And I do like that, that episode, I'm gonna have to, to renege on my statements and say that I was coming from a place of ignorance. I was, I was wrong. And I feel like uh, I'm doing this because I've, uh, I'm, I'm saying that I'm wrong because I feel like we should, one, because I am, <laughs> or I was, and I also want to make it more acceptable to admit one's wrong because we, in this cancel culture we got going on, you got to be right all the time. You can never be wrong and nobody ever wants to admit that they're wrong. Well, I'll say it. I was wrong. And... I think one of the reasons that I was wrong was, well, we live in a secular world and in America specifically, we live in a secular and racist world. Um, And so what that means is, or one of the effects of that is that, so in, in terms of living in a racist world, right? Whenever black people do something notable, that is exceptional, that is noteworthy, many times, more often than not, the fact that they were black will get completely written out or omitted from from whatever they did. And what I'm thinking about specifically is the movie Hidden Figures, okay? Hidden Figures is a great film. I really enjoyed it. However, by the end of the movie, I was so, so angry. And the reason I was angry is because Hidden Figures, y'all, is a true story. Those black women basically got those men to the moon or out either in space, whatever it was, it was, if it had not been for those black mathematicians, those black, black women physicists, those men would not have made it. And I, I remember learning in school about the history of NASA. And I remember learning about all these expeditions and nowhere was that mentioned. And the reason, and the, the, the short answer is because the reason that is is because we live in a racist society that wants you to believe, or that that, or we live in a racist society whose existence is dependent upon not just the assertion that white is superior, but your belief that white is superior. And so it's not going to share information that or make readily available information that would will undermine that. And so that's why we don't know. That's why we, we that's why it was years and years later a lot of those women were have had already passed on before we even found out what they had done. All right? In the same respect back to this situation we live in a secular world. And whenever someone does something notable that cannot be ignored, that cannot be pushed under the rug like what Martin Luther King did with his with his life of advocacy and when they do it and when they are christian the the influence of christ and the hand of god on their life is removed either purposely or just because 
non-believers don't can't understand and they can't they they they, they can't portray that. Um, and uh, I'm thinking about a book that I can't remember the title of the, the textbook that I had in one of my classes when I was getting my master's in social work. But basically, it was talking about the founders of social work, um, Jane Addams and, and others. And so these women, they were explicit when they cited Christianity, their, their Christian beliefs as their drive for the services that they that they provided but in that book what they said was they said so what we found in the beginning of social work were people who were driven uh, who, whose christianity you know drove them up and they, they made sure to say this but it but it wasn't it wasn't a christianity that was based off of you know it, it, uh, evangelism and proselytizing now it was driven by uh, the the humanitarianism of the early church and I was talking to a friend today and I just found that statement just appalling and just wrong for a lot of reasons but one of the things that I said was was like for when you look in Acts when the, the early church was, was getting started First of all, the only reason there wasn't early church was because of evangelism. Peter preached the good news of the gospel. He told people that what had just happened, that Jesus had died and risen three days later, taking on their sins so now that they can now now, now we as human beings can be reconciled to God. That is the gospel. He shared the gospel and then there was a church. <laughs> there would have been no humanitarianism had it not been for the sharing of the good news. You can't get around that, but the world doesn't want the gospel to be shared, doesn't understand the gospel, doesn't understand the implications of the gospel. And so of course, it's gonna be either purposely written out or just misunderstood and not portrayed. And I feel like that that's what led in part, or in, in great part to my misunderstanding of, of Dr. King. And also it's like when, after the, after the civil civil rights movement and continuing on today um power has still pretty much remained in the hands of those that it was in during the civil rights movement in rich white people's hands right and when we consider the fact that most media outlets or most academic institutions are still run by white people um, it makes sense, you know, like most, everybody wants to be presented in the best light, right? And if you control the history books, if you control where people get their knowledge from, you are going to continue to try and present yourself in the best light or either try to shape this figure's message in the way that makes you look the most favorable. And so the point I'm trying to make with this is that I'm, I'm, the, the next part of the reclaiming, I'm past talking about myself now, is that Martin, Martin Luther King was not just some pacifist who loved America and wanted, uh, well, he did love America, but he was not just some pie in the sky idealist that wanted, that valued unity over restoration and reconciliation, restoration more so. 
Um, and what I'm going to read to you all today, first off, I'm going to forgive me. I'm kind of going out of order. Um, this is kind of a kind of proof to myself of Dr. King's spiritual and biblical acumen. We're going to get back to uh, his the, the political stuff and him not being a pacifist. But uh, one of my friends, Adriana, she let me borrow this book called Strength to Love, which was written by Martin Luther King Jr. And the foreword is from his lovely late wife, Coretta Scott King. All right. And it's a book of essays, article, yeah, essays and sermons, I believe. And the one that, that jumped out to me was one of the final ones called Paul's Letter to American Christians. I think this is so great. One thing I really like about this is that it's a piece of creative writing that is still so relevant and I really feel like not only captures what I really believe would be Paul's uh, perspective on America, but also still gives a biting critique of American culture in the 60s and still today. So I'm going to read that and later on in the episode, we're going to hear some some clips of Dr. King him himself i was actually going to read a part a section of the i have a dream speech but i'm so glad i listened to it before i decided to just read it because i was just like yeah it hits all the way different when it comes from the source all right but this this first piece i'm going to read okay paul's letter to american christians dr martin luther king jr i would like to share with you an imaginary letter from the pen of the apostle paul the postmark reveals that it comes from the port city of Troas. On opening the letter, I discovered that it was written in Greek rather than in English. After working assiduously with the translation for se several weeks, I think I have now deciphered its true meaning. If the content of this epistle sounds strangely Kingian instead of Paulinian, attribute it to my lack of complete objectivity rather than Paul's lack of clarity. Here is the letter as it stands before me. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to you who are in America. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For many years I have longed to see you. I have heard so much about you and of what you are doing. News has come to me regarding the fascinating and astounding advances that you have made in the scientific realm. I have learned of your dashing subways and flashing airplanes. Through your scientific genius, you have dwarfed distance and placed time in chains. You have made it possible to eat breakfast in Paris and lunch in New York City. I have also heard of your skyscraper buildings with their prodigious towers rising heavenward. I am told of your great medical advances and the curing of many dread plagues and diseases, thereby prolonging your lives and offering greater security and physical well-being. All of that is marvelous. You can do so many things in your day that I could not do in the Greco-Roman world of my day. You travel distances in a single day that in my generation required three months. That is wonderful. What tremendous strides in the areas of scientific and technological development you have made. But America, I wonder whether your moral and spiritual progress has been commensurate with your scientific progress. It appears to me that your moral progress lags behind your scientific progress. Your mentality outdistances your morality and your civilization outshines your culture. How much of your modern life can be summarized in the words of your poet Thoreau? Improved means to an unimproved end. 
Through your scientific genius, you have made of the world a neighborhood, but you have failed to employ your moral and spiritual genius to make of it a brotherhood. So, America, the atomic bomb you have to fear today is not merely that deadly weapon which can be dropped from an airplane on the heads of millions of people, but that atomic bomb which lies in the hearts of men, capable of exploding into the most staggering hate and the most devastating selfishness. Therefore, I would urge you to keep your moral advances abreast of your scientific advances. I find it necessary to remind you of the responsibility laid upon you to represent the ethical principles of Christianity amid a time that popularly disregards them. That was a task laid on me. I understand that there are many Christians in America who give their ultimate allegiance to man-made systems and customs. They are afraid to be different. Their great concern is to be accepted socially. They live by some such principle as this. Everybody is doing it, so it must be all right. For so many of you, morality merely reflects group consensus. In your modern sociological lingo, the mores are accepted as the right ways. You have unconsciously come to believe that what is right is determined by Gallup polls. American Christians, I must say to you what I wrote to the Roman Christians years ago. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have a dual citizenry. You live both in time and eternity. Your highest loyalty is to God and not to the Moors or the folkways, the state or the nation or any man-made institution. If an earthly institution or custom conflicts with God's will, it is your Christian duty to oppose it. You must never allow the, tran the transitory, evanescent demands of man-made institutions to take precedence over the eternal demands of the Almighty God. In a time when men are surrendering the values of the faith, you must cling to them. And despite the pressure of an alien generation, preserve them for children yet unborn. You must be willing to challenge unjust mores, to champion unpopular causes, and, and to buck the status quo. You are called to be the salt of the earth. You are to be the light of the world. You are to be that vitally active leaven in the lump of the nation. I understand that you have an economic system in America known as capitalism, through which you have accomplished wonders. You have become the richest nation in the world, and you have built the greatest system of production that history has ever known. All of this is marvelous. But Americans, there is the danger that you will misuse your capitalism. I still contend that the love of money is the root of much evil and may cause a man to become a gross materialist. I am afraid that many among you are more concerned in making money than in accumulating spiritual treasures. The misuse of capitalism may also lead to tragic exploitation. This has so often happened in your nation. I am told that one-tenth of one percent of the population controls more than 40% of the wealth. America, how often have you taken necessities from the masses and given luxuries to the classes? If you are to be a truly Christian nation, you must solve this problem. You cannot solve it by turning to communism, for communism is based on an ethical relativism a metaphysical materialism, a crippling totalitarianism, and a withdrawal of basic freedom that no Christian can accept. But you can work within the framework of democracy 
to bring about a better distribution of wealth. You must use your powerful economic resources to eliminate poverty from the earth. God never intended one people to live in superfluous and inordinate wealth, while others know only deadening poverty. God wants all of his children to have the basic necessities of life, and he has left in this universe, quote, enough and to spare, end quote, for that purpose. I would that I might be with you in person so that I could say to you face to face what I am forced to put down in writing. Oh, how I long to share your fellowship. Let me say something about the church. Americans, I must remind you, as I have told so many others, that the church is the body of Christ. When the church is true to its nature, it knows neither division nor disunity. I am told that within American Pro Protestantism, there are more than 250 denominations. The tragedy is not merely that you have such a multiplicity of denominations, but that many groups claim to possess absolute truth. Such narrow sectarianism destroys the unity of the body of Christ. God is neither Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, nor Episcopalian. God transcends our denominations. If you are to be true witnesses for Christ, you must come to know this, America. I am happy to hear that there is a growing concern for church unity and ecumenicity in America. I have word that you have organized a national council of churches and that most of your major denominations are affiliated with the World Council of Churches. All of this is marvelous. Continue to follow this creative path. Keep these church councils alive and continue to give them your unstinted support. I have the encouraging news that there has been some recent dialogue between Roman Catholics and Protestants. I am told that several Protestant churchmen from your nation accepted Pope John's invitation to be observers at a recent ecumenical council in Rome. This is both a significant and healthy sign. I hope it is the beginning of a development that will bring all Christians closer and closer together. Another thing that disturbs me about the American church is that you have a white church and a Negro church. How can segregation exist in the true body of Christ? I am told that there is more integration within the entertaining world and other secular agencies than there is in the Christian church. How appalling this is. I understand that there are Christians among you who try to find biblical bases to justify segregation and argue that the Negro is inferior by nature. Oh, my friends, this is blasphemy and against everything the Christian religion stands for. I must repeat what I have said to many Christians before. That in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Moreover, I must reiterate the words I uttered on Mars Hill. God that made the world and all things therein hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. So, Americans, I must urge you to be rid of every aspect of segregation. Segregation is a blatant denial of the unity which we have in Christ. It substitutes an I-it relationship for the I-thou relationship and relegates persons to the status of things. It scars the soul and degrades the personality. It inflicts the segregated with a false sense of inferiority while confirming the segregator in a false estimate of his own superiority. It destroys community and makes brotherhood impossible. The underlying philosophy of Christianity is diametrically opposed to the underlying philosophy of racial segregation. I praise your Supreme Court for rendering a historic des desegregation decision 
and also persons of goodwill who have accepted this as a great moral victory. But I understand that some brothers have risen up in open defiance and that their legislative halls ring loud with such words as nullification and interposition. Because these brothers have lost the true meaning of democracy and Christianity, I urge each of you to plead patiently with them. With understanding and goodwill, you are obligated to seek to change their attitudes. Let them know that in standing against in integration, they are not only opposing the noble precepts of your democracy, but also the eternal edicts of God himself. I hope the churches of America will play a significant role in conquering segregation. It has always been the responsibility of the church to broaden horizons and challenge the status quo. The church must move out into the arena of social action. First, you must see that the church removes the yoke of segregation from its own body. Then you must seek to maintain, then you must seek to make the church increasingly active in social action outside its doors. It must seek to keep channels of communication open between the races. It must take an active stand against the injustices which Negroes confront in housing, education, police protection, and in city and state courts. It must exert its influence in the area of economic justice. As guardian of the moral and spiritual life of the community, the church cannot look with indifference upon these glaring evils. If you, as Christians, will accept the challenge with devotion and valor, you will lead the misguided men of your nation from the darkness of falsehood and fear to the light of truth and love. That's not the end, but that is where I'm going to stop right there. That was really, really good. And if I wasn't convinced that Dr. King was a quote unquote real Christian and true minister of the gospel, then I am convinced. Now, there were tons of biblical reference and just an understanding that an understanding and a perspective on social realities that can only come and that clearly came from a grasp of the scripture, from a grasp of God's character, from a grasp of the love and care of Christ and his mission on on earth. The next thing I'm going to share is a clip from the very beginning of the I have a dream speech. Again, I'm so glad I listened to it first before I read it because your boy wouldn't have done it justice. But here we go. Enjoy. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves 
who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, The Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. What I love, love, love about this speech and what also kind of gets me upset about it is just how confrontational Dr. King was in the, in the beginning. He says that they were there on that day to cash a check, not just any check, a check that had been promised to them promise to all of us as American citizens, a promissory note, if you will, that America had defaulted on. That critique right there, I think, flies in the face of the 
completely passive and actually delusional version of Dr. King that we're there that we're fed. If when any anytime you call out or so many times when you call out injustice or and when you point out the lack of unity that is has been endemic in America since its inception people will often cite Dr. King. They'll cite the end of the speech when they said he had a dream that his children will be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. They'll talk about how Dr. King stood for unity and peace. I said, but the reason he was standing for those things is because they were non-existent. He was not enjoying that. And I heard it said, I can't, I can't remember who said this, but it says Dr. King said he had a dream. A dream is something, is a reality. A dream is a hope, actually. A dream is a hope that has not yet become reality. And so the fact that he was even saying that it was a dream was in itself a critique because he was saying this is how the world should be, but it is not. I love this speech and I'm really falling in love with this new, with the real Dr. King, who I'm coming to learn more and more about that. I still have a, a long ways to go. This was just one, what I read to you all was just, just one excerpt from, from this book, Strength to Love. And like I said, we've only, we only listened to the beginning of the I Have a Dream speech. I highly encourage you to listen to the whole thing and then also read the whole thing so you can just really digest everything that there was, that there, that there's there to, to get, all right? And the last clip I'm going to share with you all and talk about is one from an interview of Dr. King sometime after his I Have a Dream speech. And I was originally made aware of this after I gave after I gave a talk on the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Somebody just told me about it. They said, they said go on YouTube and search MLK. My dream has become a nightmare so without further ado i have the audio here for your listening pleasure i have a dream my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character i have a dream today I must confess that uh, that dream that I had that day has at many points turned into a nightmare. Now, I'm not one to lose hope. I keep on hoping. Uh, I still have faith in the future. But I've had to analyze many things over the last few years, and I would say over the last few months. I've gone through a lot of soul-searching and agonizing moments. And I've come to see that uh, we have uh, many more difficult days ahead. And some of the old optimism was a little superficial. And now it must be tempered with a solid realism. And I think the realistic fact is that we still have a long, long way to go. And that we are involved in a war on Asian soil, uh, which, if not checked and stopped, can poison the very soul of our nation. I'm not going to say that all of our problems will be solved if the war in Vietnam is ended, but I do say that the war makes it infinitely more difficult to deal with these problems. 
when a nation becomes obsessed with the guns of war, uh, it loses its social perspective and programs of social uplift suffer. This is just a, a fact of history so that we do face many more difficulties uh, as a result of the war. It's much more difficult to really arouse a conscience during a time of war. That is something about a war like this that makes people insensitive. It dulls a conscience. It strengthens the forces of reaction, and it brings into being bitterness and hatred and violence. I think the biggest problem now is that we got our gains over the last 12 years at bargain rate, so to speak. It didn't cost the nation anything. In fact, it helped the economic side of the nation to integrate lunch counters and public accommodations. It didn't cost the nation anything uh, to get uh, the right to vote established. And now we are confronting issues that cannot be solved without costing the nation billions of dollars. Now, I think this is where we're getting our greatest resistance. They may put it on many other things, but we can't get rid of slums and poverty without it costing the nation something. I feel that nonviolence is really the only way uh, that we can follow because uh, violence is just so self-defeating. A riot ends up creating many more problems for the Negro community uh, than it solves. You can, through violence, burn down a building, but you can't establish justice. You can murder a murderer, but you can't murder murder through violence. You can murder a hater, but you can't murder hate. And what we are trying to get rid of is hate and injustice and all of these other things that continue the long night of man's inhumanity to man. When we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. So what hits me about this is that I, I like it for so many reasons. One, it kind of goes back to these people who want to make Dr. King out to be this idealist who just wanted us to, who 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 would have who would sacrifice peace and restoration for the sake of a facade of unity he acknowledged that even in this in his great speech the one he's most well known for that there was some naivete and unfounded hope Hopefulness. Not saying that he, and he, he made sure to say that he was not hopeless, but that some of his hope, some of his or expectation or assumption was was not well founded, and it was due into in the reality that people love uh, symbolic symbolic actions, and by symbolic actions or things basically things that don't cost money like you know it doesn't cost any money to remove a sign to 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 put to take down a sign that says whites only it doesn't take any money to do that 
but to restore communities that have been disenfranchised, to restore, to, to make up for the generations, the hundreds and hundreds of years where it was illegal for black people to read, for the generations of people that were denied access to housing, for the generations of people who were not allowed to enjoy the benefits of things as recent as of government programs as recent as as the new deal it was going to take systemic restructuring and a financial commitment that he knew that people were unwilling to make and unfortunately we're still unwilling to make a, a lot more a lot of us are still too many of us are still unwilling to make these changes and in reclaiming doctor and reclaiming the legacy of of Dr. King, I hope that those of you who understand this and who are still fighting for justice, instead of your work and your message being critiqued by Dr. King's contrived legacy that I admit I used to share and believe, that you will be encouraged, that you will find yourself in good company with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And with that, uh, let us pray. Lord God, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your servant and son, Dr. Martin Luther King. Thank you, Lord God, for the conviction that you gave him. And I, and I thank you for being the God that he believed in. He believed in a loving God who had already come and done the work necessary to bring about our unity. He believed in a God who left, who, not, who, who rose and left his Holy Spirit in us to empower us to do his will. And I thank you for empowering him to begin the work or rather to continue to continue the work of reconciliation to continue the work of reunifying the church of shining light in the midst of darkness no matter how frantically and no matter how violently People continue to try and turn off the lights. Thank you for his legacy. And I thank you, thank you for the inspiration, not just so that we can adore him and he praises on him, but so that we can continue to do the work that you want us to do. Lord God, you don't want us to be separate. You want us to be unified, Lord God. But before we can have you know, unification, we have to have restoration and reconciliation, Lord God. So we pray that you that would happen Lord God raise up leaders raise up the leader in me raise up the leader in all of us listening Lord God to do your work to do the work of the ministry to bring about unity in the church so that we can go out into the world go beyond the four walls of the church and spread your gospel message, spread the good news, spread the unity 
the freedom, the love, the joy, the kingdom of God throughout our neighborhoods, throughout our cities, throughout our nation, throughout the world. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Happy Black History Month once again, everybody. Uh, The next episode, we will be reclaiming the legacy of Malcolm X. Until then, keep the faith and stay woke.